Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Erich. I am the founder of 1000 Hours Outside. And we have a guest today that I have been following for a long time, just a huge fan of her books. They're very enlightening, very interesting. Dr. Jean Twangy, welcome. Thank you. So I'm a, I like to read. I'm a, I'm a pretty big reader, read you know a lot of nonfiction. And I think that the book that has been referenced the most in other books that I've read is iGen. So I had to pick it up. I mean, I was seeing it everywhere. So I would love to start maybe at the very, very, very end, which might take us actually to the very beginning. But you have a new book that's coming out this April called Generations, where you go through six different generations and talk about the differences and what they mean for America's future. And it's a super interesting book. At the very, very, very end, you have the acknowledgments. So I'd love to start with Jill, with your literary agent. You wrote such a beautiful thing about her in the book. And I was surprised, Jean, to read that at the beginning, you know, everyone sort of has this initial pushback on getting your information out into the world. Because, you know, I've seen your book quoted everywhere. I, Jen. So it was so intriguing to me that you got rejections at the beginning. So could you just talk us through how you became the reigning, I guess I probably should tell people who you are. <laughs> right? Should I tell people who you are? I know, because I love your books. Let me back up. Okay, the reigning expert on generational change is one of the quotes I've seen. But I, and I love that. So you have been studying for Oh, three decades or so, different generations. A professor of psychology at San Diego State University, author of more than 180 scientific publications, several books based on her research in generational change, including iGen and Generation Me. Her research has been covered in Time, The Atlantic, Newsweek, New York Times, USA Today, The Washington Post, featured on Today, Good Morning America, Fox and Friends, CBS This Morning, NPR. You live in San Diego with your husband and three daughters. So that's a little bit for people who don't know. I think a lot of people will know because, like I said, your book is quoted everywhere. But could you take us back to the beginning? I know you talk in generations about how you sort of got it started in studying generations. And then you ended up writing all these fascinating books. Yeah, so, you know, I was an undergrad uh, working on my college honors thesis, and I was really interested in gender and gender roles. I've kind of always been interested in that. And so I was doing a project on um, how all those different gender roles related to each other. So I was using this questionnaire that was written in the early 70s and gave it to a bunch of people and scored it and was like, wait, am I doing this wrong? Because these scores are totally different than this test manual from 20 years ago said they should look like. And then I realized that that very well might be a generational difference. So then when I went to grad school the next year, um, I was able to investigate that in a lot more depth, find a lot more researchers who had used that scale and found, sure enough, there was this very, very large and linear change, particularly for women describing themselves as assertive and as leaders, um, which didn't happen as much in the early 70s. So that you know made sense. That was a generational difference. And that was also around the same time that there was a lot of attention to my own generation, Generation X, and how we were different from the boomers before us. And even though I loved a lot of the books and articles about Gen X, I noticed very quickly that very few of them had much data, especially psychological data. They would say things mm. like, 
Gen Xers have low self-esteem and be like, wait, how did you prove that? Did you actually have data from a self-esteem questionnaire or anything else? And usually they didn't. So as a grad student doing PhD in personality psychology, I realized that this was an amazing opportunity. It was a really interesting topic. And there hadn't been a lot of empirical research on it. Hmm. It's fascinating because then you dove into a countless data points, 11 million surveys, and, and then it, it just becomes more and more. So could you tell people just for a baseline understanding, we talk about generations, we talk about that in two different ways. So my, there's four generations in this photo, right? But in these books, you're talking about time periods where people were born. So do you think that most people, when they use the term generation, what are they referring to? You know, the term generation, you know, originally referred to families. It's like hmm. we're the third generation who lived in this house or something right. like that. But now the term is more frequently used in terms of social generation of groups of people born in a certain time period who shared some common experiences, often common experiences growing up. Mm-hmm. And these, you know, the cutoffs for these are fairly arbitrary. They do bleed into each other. But like anything else in language, they're a convenient shorthand. Just like we talk about people in their 20s, even though people who are 20 are pretty different from people who are 29, we can talk about, say, iGen or Gen Z being those born between 1995 and 2012. It's a pretty big span, but this is the first generation to spend their entire adolescence in the age of the smartphone. And then at at the end, they're the ones who will remember a time before COVID. So we can think about you know the the cutoffs. There's some logic to them, right? Well, you talk that a lot of a lot of it has to do with technological change, which makes a lot of sense. That one of the big cutoffs, and this is in between the millennials, which you have your book Generation Me, which is about the millennials. Yeah. Well, actually, and then okay, so it's Generation Me. You have the book Generation Me about the millennials, and then you have iGen, which I'm going to spell it for people who are listening. It's I-G-E-N, like internet generation. Some people call Generation Z, but this internet generation, which I love, I think it's such a fabulous way to describe. They're 1995 to 2012. And then a lot of books talk about 2012 as being this big change in our world. And so you talk a lot about how sometimes these generational breaks happen with technological change. So could you talk a little bit about 2012 and what changed then? Yeah. So, you know, I had um, been working with, you know, a lot of these big surveys of data sets for, for a long time. And I got used to seeing changes that were big, but, you know, they take a decade or two to get there. And then in the data from teens, around 2012, there started to be much bigger changes. Hmm. More and more teens started to say they felt lonely that they felt like they couldn't do anything right or that they didn't enjoy life, mm-hmm. classic symptoms of depression. Uh, and at first I thought maybe it's a blip, you know, and this really went up in this one year, what's going on, but then it kept going. Mm-hmm. So there was this pronounced break, um, I realized later, between millennials and Gen Z at that time. And it, you know, it wasn't an absolute break. It didn't change overnight, but it changed awfully fast, much mm-hmm. faster than most of the other generational changes I had observed in in the past. So 2012 happens to be, at the end of 2012, the first time the majority of Americans owned a smartphone. Wow. And that may have something to do with it. 
right? That the technology really can drive these changes between the generations. So I think what this audience will be really interested in. So, you know, we're, I guess, attempting to cut screen time, but more in a roundabout way. We're trying to fill our life with hands-on real life experiences so that there's just less time left over for screen time. You know, it's a really tricky thing to deal with as a, and I know that I'm sure you relate as a mother and um, with our kids and with ourselves, probably first and foremost with ourselves, but you talk a lot about screen time in iGen and you talk about mental health as well. And I think it's just, I believe it's a book that every parent should read. And I really loved then reading Generations, both for the initial information about the silence and the boomers and that type of thing, but also it was a good follow-up. It's six years later, so a really good follow-up. Mm-hmm. You know, more research has come out, a lot more. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I was really intriguing. I, I loved that. It was like I got a part two, you know, to these things I had read before. But, but for the sake of this audience, can we talk about mental health as it relates to screen time? Yeah. So here's one example. The more hours a day that, that a teen spends on social media, the more likely he or she is to be depressed. And mm. study after study has found that. Uh, And then there's experiments. People cut back on social media or give it up entirely. And three weeks later, they're happier and less depressed. And, you know, this makes a lot of intuitive sense when you think about it. Mm -hmm. That just think about the way, you know, what what do people really need? What do humans really need to thrive? Generally, we need to interact with each other. Screen time is supposed to do that, but it's a pale substitute for action being with someone face-to-face and we need those relationships and we need all of these things we have evolved to need like good food, being outside, getting exercise. Those things are linked to better mental health. And so what's happened with iGen or or Gen Z and generation that follows them is all this time in, in childhood and adolescence that used to be spent out of the house with friends or playing outside or teens going out with their friends has been replaced by being alone in your bedroom on the phone. And that's Mm -hmm. not a good formula for mental health. Right. And one of the things that you talk about in both books is that we have sort of traded physical safety for emotional safety. And you talk about some of the ramifications of not having these times for kids to go (laughs) figure it out on their own to engage in some risk, I guess, or to be alone. So can you talk about that? That's a big change. I mean, every, everyone talks about that change. They talk about how that when they were kids, they roamed the neighborhood. And then now the kids are not roaming the neighborhood. They're mainly in their bedrooms. I mean, you had really, I, what I, one of the things I really loved about I, Jen, was that you had quotes from actual kids. And one kid said, you know, my, my bed has an imprint of my body in it. It was a really visually, it makes you really understand kind of what's going on. So how is that affecting their adolescence and how they're growing up? Yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing. So in, in generations, I trace this back, at least in part, to the slow life strategy. Hmm. That's a concept from psychology. Basically, the idea is when times and places when people live longer and education takes longer to finish, 
parents have fewer children and nurture them more carefully. Mm-hmm. Like a pretty good description for how we raise kids now. So it means that the whole developmental trajectory has slowed down from infancy to old age. So for kids and teens, for example, that kids are less likely to roam the neighborhood on their own. They're less independent. Adolescents are less likely to do adult things like um, go out on dates or um, go out with their friends without their parents or have a job or drink alcohol or have their driver's license. Mm -hmm. All of those things have, have gone down. And, you know, those are a mix of things that people consider, quote, good and bad. But what they have in common is a slower development. And there are some clear advantages to that, physical safety being one of them. But many people have argued, and I agree, that we have moved from just trying to protect our kids from physical dangers to protecting our kids from experiences. Hmm. And thus particularly say when they graduate from high school, they just have less experience with independence and with making their own decisions in the real world than previous generations that at the same age. And that can have some disadvantages for going to college or entering the workplace. When they have to kind of go from zero to 60, boom, all of a sudden they're on their own. And that's what I hear a lot when visit college campuses and give talks and, and student affairs professionals in particular will tell me I have more and more students who can't make even simple decisions without texting their parents. Hmm. It's really interesting. I think like I've, like I already said, it's really an eye-opening one to read. It, it definitely pushed me in a practical way to really think about how much am I hovering basically and should I pull back a little bit more? Because you use this really cool phrase, you called it the recital, basically, that these social skills, you learn them over time. And then the recital, right? you have to practice them. The recital is when you go for a job interview, when you have to talk to your college professor, when you're in the workforce, and you have really clear data points in your books about how the amount of social face-to-face interaction has dropped considerably an hour every single day. I mean, that's so much over the course of a childhood. So this very interesting book, Concrete, the results could not be clearer, these things that you talk about. And then that loneliness is an epidemic as, I don't know if that's the word that you would use, but that loneliness is at at an all-time high as well. Is that correct? It is, yeah. That was actually one one of the first things that really popped up with these, these trends after 2012 was more and more teens saying that they felt lonely and more saying that they felt left out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that is a product of like, especially social media culture. So right. social media is supposed to connect us, but think about it this way. If you're on social media, there's all of the pressures associated with that. Plus then you can see what all your friends are doing without you. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're not on social media, then you also feel disconnected. This is what teens tell me. They feel like they can't win. Yeah. Yeah. You're left out. That was something that you had written. You're left out no matter what. Either way, you're left out. So if you choose not to have it, then you're left out of the plans and people are doing things without you. And then, but if you're on it, you also see that you're left. I can't even imagine. I, I think that reading about the newer generations is fascinating because it does help you be more empathetic and to understand. And I like what you say, Jean, about how I think there's a tendency to view generational changes as negative. But you say they're not, some are negative, some are positive, some are both, some are neither. And I think that 
your books do such a great job of highlighting, look, these are ones to watch out for. In this case, the social face-to-face -face interaction, the hands-on experiences, you know, and then you have cool ideas. Like you had one idea that if you're going out to eat, that the first person to pick up their phone is the one who pays the bills. You know, I, I like these kind of things. So there's great answers in here. One that said, kids who spent five days away from screens improved their social skills significantly. So very cool studies and things that give you ideas of things to do. And then also to realize that some of the generational changes don't matter quite so much in terms of ramifications for adulthood and things like that. But in terms of social media, you did have a quote in here from um, an ER doctor that said, every single week we have a girl who comes to the ER after some social media rumor or incident has upset her. So that's probably a negative one, you know, the bullying and the things that are happening online. There, there's all kinds of, of just amazingly terrible stuff. So there's there's yeah. the bullying. There's, um, I mean, th th think about it this way, like particularly for teen girls who use mm -hmm. Instagram. Instagram's a platform where teen girls and young women take pictures of themselves and then strangers comment upon the pictures. Yeah. It's really what it is. When you think about it that way, it's really not that shocking that it leads to body image issues and depression. Right. Right. And then suicides are up, which I think is something that's worth talking about, too. You say we're at the forefront of the worst mental health crisis in decades. I think I, I'm but I wanted to say, though, that your books, they're not they're not they're not these. It's not soul sucking. The books are very hope filled and they're very informative in in a way that makes you understand. And so that's what I love about the way that you write and the things that you write about. So I'm, I want the information. But then you also talk about things that we can do about it. And I think having the knowledge, I think, helps us to be better parents and to be better people. But you do talk about that there was a suicide uptick starting in 2008 and that we're in this mental health crisis. Is it continuing to be that way? Yeah. So when, when I wrote iGen, uh, when they came out in 2017, we're really just at the beginning of right. the mental health crisis. And it's gotten much, more, much, much worse because all those trends around self-harm and depression and suicide just going in the same direction. But, you know, you're, you're right that I do have hope. Um, you know, one thing that I realized is if social media and smartphones are the cause of the increase mm -hmm. in teen depression, that might actually be good news because that means we can do something about it. Right. So many causes of depression are out of our control. We can't help the genes we were born with or the experiences we had in the past. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we can't stop the, you know, bullying that happens. But we can cut back on screen time. We can appeal to policymakers to enforce age minimums on social media, maybe even raise them. Mm -hmm. 13 right now, it should probably be 16. Right. And overall, just think more carefully about our relationship with technology. That right. smartphones in particular are great. You know, I'm not a, not a Luddite. I've got an iPhone. It's mm -hmm. awesome for maps, for my boarding pass, for you know, all kinds of things, but it's a tool. We have to put it away when we're done with it. And social media in particular, they make money by sucking us back in. So kids on TikTok being a recent example. And it's just, you know, we have a limited time here on earth. Let's think about how we spend that time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these algorithms from social media companies are conspiring to have us spend our time with them. When the skies open up, while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody, and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, 
turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember, to sign up and save, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. Right. Yeah. And you have really good information in your books about actually the research. The research is fairly clear that there's a tipping point. First of all, that you talked, you just talked about, which I think is important to talk about that the social media for the younger teens can be more detrimental. That's one of the things, right? Yes. Than for older teens. Yes. So when you talk about raising the age to 16, that would be really helpful. And then also there's a sort of two to three hour. Can you talk about that? If we could put some limitations on it. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, well, since, since I wrote iGen, you know, there's been a lot more research in it and it's becoming a little bit more clear. When I, when I wrote that, it looked like what showed up in a lot of, of the data was up to two to three hours of screen time wasn't really linked significantly to mental health issues. And beyond that, it was. Mm-hmm. But we also know now that it depends on what you're doing with that time. Mm-hmm. That there's a bigger link to depression with social media and general internet use, for example, than there is for gaming or watching TV. Hmm. So, you know, two hours of gaming doesn't look like it um, is associated with depression at the same rate as two hours of social media use, for example. So it, it is a little more complex, which then makes it a little harder to make those decisions as a parent. I now think that the two biggest things that parents should think about are number one, no devices in the bedroom overnight to preserve sleep really, really key. And not just for your teen and or your kid, but for yourself too. So many studies from sleep labs show that we do not sleep as well if that phone is within arm's reach. Mm-hmm. And then the second is putting off social media as long as possible. 
Wow. That's why you're so incredible, Jean. It's so concrete. And you take that out of your book. You boil down. I mean, can you tell us it's like, was it a, for the first, for iGen, it was like 11 million. So this, but this new one is 64 million. I have so many notes here. I can't 39. find it. I know. There's so okay. many numbers I know, right? <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah, I, I basically used four, maybe five data sets for, for iGen when I was writing it. It's 25. I think now for, for this one, because it's about all six generations. So I, I've broadened the scope to be everything for adults as well. And yeah, about 39 million people to just really take a broad look at all six of the generations, all of the trends and you know, so many areas. And then what that means, you know, for this current cultural moment that we're living in, you know, around technology and around national conversation and national culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just all fascinating. It's a topic I didn't realize I would be so fascinated by, you know, who knew? And like I said, I really have loved reading these books in succession and learning more as more data comes out and as you have poured over more data. So we have five kids and three of them are born before 2012. And so they are a part of this internet generation, iGen. And then we have two that are in the new one that you are, you are calling Polars. Some people are calling Generation Alpha. Mm-hmm. What are some of your emerging thoughts on, well, gosh, it was really fascinating to read that these kids aren't even going to remember pre-COVID life. So are the ones that we have are uh, 10 and 6 that are in this new one. But what are some of the emerging thoughts on the kids that are born after 2012? Yeah, so I'm defining this generation as born between 2013 and 2029. We have to see if that end cutoff sticks. The name Polars comes from melting polar ice caps and political polarization. So two things that are very prominent right now that might shape this generation going forward. Um, with COVID, you know, these are the kids who were pretty young when COVID hit, and it still remains to be seen how that's going to have an impact on them. There's a, you know, a lot of concern about social skills and language skills, maybe not getting as developed, you know, around those ages, but kids are resilient. They very well might catch up. And that was a thought that I had in, in writing this and realizing that I had started the book with the silent generation, those born before the boomers, 1925 to 1945, mm-hmm. who experienced the Great Depression and World War II yeah. as kids and teens and, and young adults. And they came through that pretty well. You know, their their mental health, even during COVID, when they were the elderly people who were much more at risk, their mental health, they were very resilient. And so that gave me some hope for polars, thinking that, you know, spending your childhood in a difficult time doesn't necessarily doom you, that there's some good possibilities. With that said, though, I, I, you know, I do have some concerns and there are, you know, some negatives in the data, particularly around obesity and physical activity that kids are just not getting enough time outside. They're just not getting enough exercise. And that might be why we have these, you know, some of these health issues showing up already with kids at these very young ages. Right. Yeah, that was one of the things in Generations. That was interesting to read about. I mean, that, that's what we're working on over here is trying to get the kids outside. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. they get outside, they exactly. they tend to move. So, um, and they move in, in complex ways and it helps them in, in a lot of different facets of their development. But I'm curious, and this may go off the rails, but when you talk about the technology change, it's hard to even imagine what's to come. You can't, you can't really imagine, right? Who could have imagined an internet in our pocket Maybe you dream of that. You think, oh, but who can really imagine? And one of the things that you talk about is sometimes these generational 
changes are somewhat swift because technology is changing so fast. So one of the things that's here, it's not even on the horizon anymore, is artificial intelligence. And I don't know if you've done any research into if that's going to have a big impact on these polars, because already our kids that are teens, they're pretty enamored with it. You can put in, you write a story about a teenage mutant ninja turtle who meets a shark and it'll it'll spit out this whole interesting story. You can do artwork with it. And I do think it will probably... And this has obviously happened before. There's no more encyclopedias. You know, there's no more encyclopedia salesmen. They go, it, it will probably wipe out a chunk of the workforce in certain realms of different careers. Do you think that that will play into this new generation at all? Or do you think that's maybe down the road? You know, it, it, it definitely remains to be seen. And so I, th- I think it's interesting looking at predictions from, say, 10 years ago or five years ago and seeing if they came true. Um, and maybe some, but a lot didn't. So 10 or 15 years ago, for example, there was the idea that massive online courses were going to replace college faculty. That didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, then five, seven or so years ago, there was self-driving cars are going to replace human drivers. Maybe eventually, but that's pretty stall. That's stall to make a bad pun. I mean, it just hasn't yeah. happened yet. So we'll see. You know, and I think it's it is unpredictable because. So the, the smartphone is a great example that I think when Steve Jobs gave that famous speech where he introduced the iPhone, I don't think he would have predicted that it was going to interfere so much with face-to-face social interaction. Wow. You know, you watch that presentation and it's really, it's all of this cool, like, look, you can call the Starbucks, you can, you know, mm-hmm. find the direction. And these are all the things that it's great for, but social media wasn't as big then in 2007 when he was doing this introduction. And I I think he would have been appalled, honestly, for if he were alive today to see people staring at their phones every moment. Wow. Yeah. And you talk about that in your books that everyone's looking down, they're just starting to look up at that Steve Jobs and then some of the other tech sort of moguls are the ones that got things going that they didn't allow their kids to use some of the devices. And so it's an interesting exactly. piece of information that you have in your books. I I thought it was interesting. You wrote about, well, let me ask you this. Okay. It's, I love, I love iGen. Um, and let me actually read the subtitle of this book. Why today's super connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. And what that means for the rest of us are a lot of people using iGen. I love iGen over Gen X and millennials. And I like yours. Are people using those? No, I had high at help at first. Um, because yeah, that generation born 1995 to 2012, the time I wrote iGen didn't have an agreed upon label. So now Gen Z. Gen Z has stuck. Is what's being used the most. And, and, in, and in generations, I switch over to that because it is the most common label now. I've never been a fan. I'm still not a fan, partially because of this. You know, we have Gen X. That's my generation. Yeah. I think that label makes some sense. X is a label for an unknown quantity. It kind of fits us. And then they tried to call millennials Gen Y, but it didn't stick, partially because naming a generation after the one before is lame. Um, <laughs> nobody really wants that. It's not very descriptive either. And so millennials caught on. So then if we're skipping Y, then how come the next generation is be? Like, it just didn't make sense. So iGen, I was hoping would catch on. It didn't. I still have a little bit of hope for the label Zoomers. 
I think that's oh. kind of cute and it really fits their experience during the pandemic and maybe even afterward. So maybe that'll catch on. But right now, Gen Z is it. All right, but I I want to help it catch on to you. Not that anybody really cares on my small podcast, but I really like iGen and Zoomers is great. I mean, we just sure switched over to Zoom and I mean, it fits in so many different ways. I like Zoomers. I love, and I like Generation Me. I think that your names are fantastic and you should tell people, look, you are the reigning, what did they say? You are the reigning generations expert. I think the reigning expert on generational change, I think you should be allowed to pick the names. I, I love yours. I, Jen, but Generation X, one of the things that you talked about, I think it was Generation X, which was the one that was the, like the, they're the last to have the analog, but first it was like, they're the last and the first. I thought that was really interesting. Last to still have analog things. That's Gen X. Although, you know, you could describe millennials that way too, but I think it's really Gen X. You know, the Gen X had an analog childhood. Mm-hmm. It then was introduced to personal computers and other technology early enough in adolescence and young adulthood that we have a foot in both camps. Yeah, that's really an interesting thing, just on a, on an aside to think about, to be the last of this and the first of the next thing. So I think people, it's fun to read about your own generation. It's fun to read about the previous ones. It's fun to read about the ones that are coming and to think what might change. And that's really what Generations, this new book that comes out April 25th, is about. So I think they're great to read in succession and there's a lot of things it it gives you things to talk about i think with other people too and so anyway seriously super interesting are you still are you constantly researching or do you finish something and then kind of take a break um i mean I'm, it, it is relatively constant so you know in in preparation for the book coming out i'm i'm you know, working on writing some op-ed and some stack posts and things like that. And yeah, that does often send me back to the data sets to try to see, oh, is there anything new out or is there a new way to look at this? And I have to, you know, pick up a little bit on what you said about just, you know, reading about about other generations that my, my perspective on this is somewhat different from a lot of the stuff you might read on generations where it's about fault. And it's about blaming. Like so much of the stuff you read online is like millennials blaming boomers for this or that, or, you know, it's why are you blaming us? It's other generations fault. I think that is so counterproductive. It's incredible. Um, plus it's not accurate. Right. There's big cultural changes that happen and we're all affected by them, maybe differently depending on our age and generation, but we're all affected by these. And, you know, my goal in writing these books is understanding. Let's try to understand each other better by listening to what we say. And you know, interviews is one way to do that. And then to get, you know, really dialed down into what's going on. These big surveys where you get large, large numbers of people going back in time. So we don't have to think about, you know, well, boomers remembering what it was like when they were 18. We have actual data from boomers, well, at late boomers anyway, from when they were 18, from stuff from at least one of these surveys that goes back to 1977. You know, it's it's amazing. And that this, this is what just, you know, even though I've done this for decades, it just blows me away is like how we can do that um, because we have these amazing resources of these surveys that, that have been done year after year for so long. And that's how we can do it. We can understand each other better. And that's really the main point. 
Yeah, and that is really what comes out, I would say, because it's it's so intriguing and it's interesting and it's fascinating to learn about how life was different for these different generations. And then to read about your own and to really relate with it and to see, I'm, I'm on the cusp. I was born in um, at the end of 1980, so I'm on the cusp between two and a lot of my kids are on the cusp between two. So it's interesting to see a little bit of crossover from one to the next. And so um, it just really enjoyed they're, they're meaty books. I've got, I, Jen, I mean, mine is dog-eared. I've written all over it. It's one you kind of go back to, and I can see why it's been quoted time and time and time and time again in other people's books. Did you expect that? I know there was a little bit, the Jill made it seem like there was a little bit of a rockier start. Well, with, with Generation Me, my first book, which came out in 2006, mm-hmm. yes. So the first book is the hardest. Right. Most authors will tell you that. After that, it, it gets a little bit easier, if, if especially if the first book did at least reasonably well. Yeah. Um, but getting the publisher to, to get behind the first book can be tough, and that's that's how how it goes. And really, you know, you are you're lucky if you get you know a, a good solid publisher. And I did, and I've, I've been with them ever since. So it it did work out well in the end. But yes, there yeah. there was a fair amount of rejection at the beginning. I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash 1000. That's drinkag1.com slash 1000. Check it out. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness. So you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last minute get together recently and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chops hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chops price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com slash outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com slash outside120 for $120 off. 
goodchap.com slash outside120, code outside120. But then here you are, like I said, I mean, I'd, I've never seen a book quoted so many times as yours. So that's fantastic. I mean, I've not read any other books about generations and yours just grabbed the attention. And then I think one of the interesting things that you talk about, and you just said it, you said we're all affected. And one of the things that you had written is that you can't get out of it. Like you're in that generation. And so for me, one of my big takeaways is like, instead of fighting it to try and figure out how we can best live within that system. So obviously this artificial intelligence is coming, who knows, maybe that won't be a big deal, maybe it will be, but instead of fighting it, you're looking at just different ramifications and how can we deal with some of the changes. Do people have some pushback about being in a certain generation, don't they? Oh, absolutely. Pretty much everybody has the moment when they're like, often when they hear negative things about the generation, like, oh, that's not me. But then they hear positive things are like, yeah, that's my generation. So, you know, that's human nature. That's just kind of how it goes. But then, you know, in a, in a you know, more honest or true moment, we also do have times where we're like, you know, even these positive things or neutral things, you know, they're just not me. I'm, I, I'm the exception. Mm-hmm. And that is absolutely to be expected here. That doesn't disprove the average results at all. Right. It means people vary in many, many different ways other than generation. And so that's true anytime you look at group differences, whether you're looking at group differences based on countries or cultures, or you're looking at them based on gender or age. Mm-hmm. There's people who are 25 or all different from each other in lots of other ways. And it's the same thing for, say, millennials are, of course, lots of variation you know, w- within the generation. But mm-hmm. there are some meaningful differences. Um, especially when you look at, at averages. And it's it's worth studying them for, as I mentioned, to try to understand each other better. Right. And that helps with who you're hiring. Well, there was a sentence that said, what was it? Someone is afraid of their, okay, it was, oh, I got to look. I keep getting confused on the names. So it was that, I mean, and they're not that far apart in age, maybe some of them, but it was saying the millennials are afraid of the, in afraid is the wrong word, but like they're trying to figure out how to work with, with the iGen, with these employees, right? So that's right. one way that it helps is if you have a business or you have coworkers and they're in a different generation. I think that's one way to get in and to kind of understand because one of the things was this particular generation, and I can't remember which one it was, but they need like more praise and encouragement. You know, I think, I think that's true for both millennials and for iGen or, or Gen Z. So I sometimes they... For, for millennials, it's more of a validation, but for Gen Z, there's a lot of insecurity there, um, lower self-esteem, less self-confidence, and social anxiety. That was true even before the pandemic, even more true now. So it is more for reassurance with that group. Yeah. So these are great things to know if you're out in the workforce. So it would help someone that is a business owner or is a manager or in any of those types of positions. One of the things that you had written about was that work is considered like for old people, getting married is considered for old people. Is that like that really <laughs> what, sort of what the thought is? There was a couple different, like, a, you know, the whole adulting thing. That's new. I mean, that yeah, word, exactly. people didn't talk about that. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. The word adult is now a verb. Um, right. And I mean, I actually, I, I found this on, at some point. I found this online, and as far as I could tell, it was unironic of like badges for adulting. Like some enterprising <laughs> millennial came up with that, sold to their peers. I guess <laughs> that was 
hilarious. But, you know, this is part of, of a bigger picture. It's part of the slow life strategy mm-hmm. that adulthood takes longer. You know, you're not in a, you, you might be a legal adult at 18, but 18 is not what it used to be. Even 25 is not what it used to be. And that, again, it's trade-offs. There's good and bad about that. Um, but that does mean that, you know, a lot of these things that previous generations associated with being in your early 20s are things that now happen more like your late 20s, if not early 30s. Things like mm-hmm. settling down in a career, getting married, having children. Right. Buying a home. Yeah. All those types of things. Leaving the house. Yeah. So it's really interesting to see. And that is the perspective then that this is something that you do when you're older. This is an older person's thing. So it's intriguing to learn. Uh, just circling back real quick on a, a big statement that was in iGen. And you were talking about brain research. And you said that uh, the brain changes based on experiences. The brain changes based on experiences that we have. And that some teens may even have an underdeveloped frontal cortex because they're not having a lot of experiences. So what do you recommend to parents? What's the balance there? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> so it, and it is a balance. You know, modern, modern parents, we, we can't live like it's 1975 and have our kindergartners, you know, walk a mile from school. However, you can have a fourth or fifth grader do that. And you can send your kids to sleepaway camp. You can encourage your teenager to get a driver's license mm-hmm. to go out of the house with their friends. If you, this is possible for you financially to have them fly in a plane by themselves. These are all experiences that really help build decision-making and independence and resilience among kids. So yes, we have to make sure that they're safe while they're doing these things. But those things I described are all pretty safe. They were definitely considered safe when Gen Xers were growing up, maybe even most millennials growing up. And what's changed now, crime is actually lower than it was when Gen Xers were kids. So, you know, the perception that things are dangerous may or may not be true. Probably not. And these are just, these are, these are, I mean, and the other thing is kids remember these things. I read this study once that was just fascinating to me. It said that if you ask young adults to remember things from their childhood, they will often, a lot of the things they remember are things they did without their parents. I think that makes perfect sense. That's when you figure stuff out. That's when you kind of figure out who you are and what your identity is and what your decision-making abilities are. And it's just, it's great preparation. I mean, there's so much focus in parenting now on preparing kids for college and competition around these things. Okay, well, all A's aren't going to mean much. You can't get your stuff together once you get to college and actually go to your classes and sleep when you're supposed to sleep and get your studying done and, and all of these things. And I think this is so common with you know, kids who just don't develop that independence and then get to college and then they can't handle it. That's my concern. So mm-hmm. um, I, I've, I've tried to strike that balance as, as, as a parent myself. Um, yeah. And it's going to depend on the kid. I have three kids. They're different from, they're all different from each other. My oldest has always loved the idea of independence. So I have tried to give her that as much as possible. She flew alone on a plane when she was eight. She got her driver's license right after she turned 16. And people are like, oh, aren't you scared by that? I'm like, no, I'm thrilled. So for one thing, we don't have to drive her to school anymore. And for another, she can go to the grocery store and get stuff for us. Um, <laughs> and how great is that? And she loves it. She just loves it. She thrives under having that independence. Yeah, that's inspiring. I think it's good for parents to hear that and that academics only carry you so far. There has to be these other facets of our children that are developed in order for them to be successful in the adult world or as successful as possible. I mean, you had this sentence that said 12th graders in 2015. So this is from iGen. So this is 
I would imagine it'd be I like to, it's cool to read generations because there's all these updated things. But 12th graders in 2015 are going out less often than eighth graders in 2009. So this stuff is rapidly changing and the older kids are doing less than the younger kids used to do. So it's really interesting to read. Yep. And those, those trends have continued. So in generations, I update a lot of that. And you see, you still see this, but you see the same decline across all of the age groups, the 12th graders, 10th graders, and 8th graders. And then still true, like take 2019, say before the pandemic, before lockdowns, same thing was true, that the 18-year-olds were going out less than the 14-year-olds were five years before. So that shows that, that slower life trajectory. It also shows that impact of technology. There's two mm-hmm. things there, really, because it's also the technology that, that why are they going out with each other? Well, because they're at home scrolling through Instagram or using Snapchat. Yeah. Yes. Uh, one of the quotes that really stuck out to me was a girl who had said, why should I go out? I've got Netflix. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's no point for me to go do anything. I've got all the entertainment that I need right here. And so it's interesting to read these different perspectives. And actually, you do touch on that. The kids are not pushing back. You know, I think when I was growing up, there's pushback. You know, you don't want these boundaries. You want freedom. You're growing up. And one of the things that you talked about that seems to be a big difference is that the iGen is, they're embracing this. <laughs> they're fine with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they have not rebelled against the emphasis on safety. They've embraced it. They have, for the most part, not rebelled against the slow life strategy. Probably my, one of my favorite quotes of all time in iGen was a young man I interviewed. He said, well, I didn't get my driver's license right away because my parents didn't push me to get my driver's license. And as a Gen Xer, that is a very, very confusing sentence. It's supposed to be the other way around. Right. <laughs> you know, you're supposed to push your parents to let you get yes. your driver's license. So I thought wow. that was that was funny. And then, I mean, just, you know, it's not just the story. It's also Gen Z teens fight with their parents less. So that, I think, is another indication that they're not pushing back, you know, against that. They're also less likely to say that they like taking risks. Right. So... They're, they really are, you know, embracing a lot of the, the safety culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really fascinating to see how it would change for, you know, a whole cohort of kids. Can we hit one more topic? I know our time is running out. I just want to say a- another time of how much I have loved your books. And people can find more information about you at Jean Twangy. It's spelled T-W-E-N-G-E dot com. And you have a fantastic website that has information about your books, FAQs. It's really well done. It's a great place to go to get more information. And people can find you there and find your books online. Uh, Generations is brand new. The real differences between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and what they mean for America's future comes out on April 25th. And it's, Gene, it's a cute book, too. I love all the different colors and all the overlap. It just turned out fantastic. I think it's got a good meaning in the way that the cover came out. But one last topic, um, especially since you work with college students at San Diego uh, State University. Ooh, can I throw in that um, I'm a U of M grad? So I know you started off a lot of your research at University of Michigan, right? Yeah, I did. That was my, my grad school experience. Yeah, so uh, we're just we live just right outside of Ann Arbor, but but you're still you're in the college, you're at San Diego State University, and one of the topics that you bring up is attention span and how attention span is not as long as it used to be. Kids are having less experience with reading. So what's going on with that? Yeah, so um, 
you know, we don't have great data on attention span over time, but we do have really good data on reading. And high school seniors are a lot less likely to read for pleasure than they used to. I mean, it's a crazy statistic. It's one of the biggest generational changes that 60% of 12th graders used to read a book, magazine, or newspaper every day that wasn't for school. And the last time that they measured it in 2017 was 15%. So wow. that's an enormous, enormous change. And, you know, it's because, of course, a lot of that has moved online. Mm-hmm. And I've heard people say, well, you know, people read on Instagram. They read the caption. That's a different experience from reading a long magazine article or a book. Mm-hmm. Reading long form text takes more attention. It takes more critical thinking. It's for more complex ideas. And, you know, this has admittedly been going on for a while. This is not a trend that started with Gen Z. But this is clearly the way things have moved is toward shorter, less complex, mm-hmm. um, and less attention span. Wow. 60% to 15% is a lot. And there was yeah, a quote huge. and there was a quote in there that I was actually kind of funny. It was a professor or a teacher gives a book to a student and they're kind of like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? And the the teacher says, so just think of it as a bunch of text messages in a row. Right. Think of it as a long text message. Yeah. It's, a, it's actually a cartoon. It's very cute. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really thought provoking books, Jean, and interesting the way that you write. I love that you lay out the information. I love that you give suggestions. I love that, you know, you hit the truth of what's going on. I think sometimes we want to hide in the sand a little bit, but it's good to know the truth. And you do see some of it swinging around. It's interesting to think about that these pollers or the Zoomers that, you know, they may make some big changes. They see that if their parents are on their phones too much, you can't, you kind of start to see it. You know, people are coming up with solutions. And so um, you've given parents and teachers and society as a whole, a lot to think about, a lot to ponder. Um, so I cannot recommend your books more highly. I have enjoyed them so much. And I'm so thankful for you coming on here. People can find you on Twitter too, at Jean underscore Twangy, T-W-E-N-G-E. Um, and obviously you have articles everywhere, New York Times, PBS, Washington Post, all over the place. So Jean, I so appreciate this. We always end our podcast with the same question. This will be a fun one from your generation. What was a favorite memory of yours from your childhood that was outside? Oh, making obstacle courses with my brother. That was so much fun. So yeah, we, you know, we did inside stuff like play with Legos and things like that. But I had, yeah, I have these great memories of us setting, just like driving out the patio furniture or, (laughs) you know, whatever we could find and making an obstacle course and then timing each other as we went over it. I mean, I'm, you know, looking back, I'm kind of like, I'm surprised nobody like, you know, busted a lip, but we didn't, you know, we, yeah. we, we, we could launch over those, those uh, patio chairs and we had a really, really good time with it. As fast as you could. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, I, I, I grew up in a neighborhood with, with, that was mostly boys. And so we played, you know, a lot of lawn football um, and, and all kinds of things. So it was mm-hmm. great. I think that's a really interesting answer because I think it just goes to show, like you said, maybe this in this day and age, that wouldn't be allowed. And in one of your books, you even talked about how in a certain school, I think it was right in Michigan, because it stuck out to me because we're in Michigan, but you know that they've banned tag and these things are getting banned. Right. But you, you really learn what your body can and can't do. That's what those experiences do. And they help you, I think, to be more safe physically and emotionally in the long run. So Jean, thank you. This is, I have been waiting for this. I cannot tell you because I have loved your book for so long, you know, so sometimes 
in order to, to get a chance to talk to an author, you have to wait until they have a new book coming out. So I, I want to tell you, I've been waiting for a long time to get to speak with you. And it has been such an honor. I am so grateful. Thank you for all you're doing. Thank you. Same, same to you. Great cause. Great thing to get across um, for our kids. Thanks, Jean. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.